Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Matt Ledica. On this episode, we are discussing auctions. We'll cover some strategies. We'll talk about results from an auction that Matt was a part of last week. We may talk a little bit of NL labor sprinkled in as well. But we'll talk more about the overall trends we've seen with prices in the NFBC auctions this spring. And fear not, even if you're not playing in an auction this season, I think this episode will still be useful. We're going to cover some endgame players we like and... Those are going to be late round picks and guys that you're interested in anyway. So plenty of good stuff here, whether or not you're playing in auctions in 2020. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere that you want to listen to podcasts. So if you're enjoying it, please take the time to leave us a nice rating and review. It goes a long way to support the work we do here. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. So be sure to check that out if you don't already have access to The Athletic. Matt, happy Monday to you. How are things going for you this week? Uh, things are going good. I am super excited uh, about the upcoming weekend. Hopefully, you know, we all can get through this coronavirus as I've been uh, prepping my way through it. Yeah, I've seen the uh, extensive <laughs> prep you've been doing on Twitter. And, and last week, you mentioned you were concerned about it. And I just said, oh, let's just go on to draft season risers and fallers. Like I, I wasn't really dismissing your concern. I just thought of it as uh, a thing I didn't want to get bummed out about mostly. I was like, yeah, this this is bad, and this is going to be a problem. Uh, so let's talk mm-hmm. fantasy baseball. Let's, let's use... <laughs> Let's use fantasy baseball for escapism because I I do that a lot. <laughs> that's that's the role of of fantasy sports in my life. Uh, aside from being something I enjoy, it just kind of diverts my attention away from the things that would uh, make me very angry or very sad on a day to day basis. So it's good. It's good to have these diversions. But uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm excited for the upcoming weekend. Uh, I've got Tout Wars. There are NFPC events going on in New York. Uh, I, I'm not signed up for the NFBC stuff in New York. I'm still trying to plot my course this year. Probably something home online. I don't think I'm making any extra mm-hmm. trips anywhere, given the circumstances, of course. <laughs> and uh, you know, I I don't know. I'm hitting the sanitizer and washing my hands like everybody else. So hopefully everything will end up being okay, and things are gonna level off and improve here in uh, the days ahead. But let's talk about auctions. Let's get into just the core tenets of how to go about building a roster. I think there's basically two ways you hear people talk about auctions, stars and scrubs, and a a balanced sort of approach. And when you start looking at the average auction values, uh, you did a really good job breaking down the clusters of players in your latest article for The Athletic. highly suggest that people maybe open that up as they're listening to the show if they're able to do that. You see the big three, Acuna, Yelich, and Trout. They've exceeded $50 in some rooms. The average value is 49 on Yelich and Trout so far, 53 on Acuna. I'm a little surprised the top pitchers aren't closer to that number. DeGrom's at 43, Cole's at 42. And I guess the first question I have for you is when you build a team in an auction, what makes you willing to spend up at the very top of the pool at those prices. I know it's something that you like to do, and it's definitely a way that I like to play, especially in mixed leagues, but I've done it in only leagues as well. But like, what compels you to pay 50 dollars potentially for one of the big three or to go over 40 for your aces? I mean, I think I, I'll have uh, you know, a select few guys I want to start my foundation with on the hitting side and the pitching side. I know last year in the Ultimate Auction, I had the first uh, nomination, and I threw out Jacob DeGrom for 40, and for some reason we got sidetracked. I don't know what happened, and it stayed out there for like five minutes. And finally somebody said 41. 
I said 42. That was the most I was going to go. I thought I was going to get him for 40. But I wanted that guy that I thought was, at worst, the top three starter. And even if he wasn't the number one all number one overall pitcher at season's end, he was going to be right up there among the leaderboard and give me all the, you know, ratios and counting stats I needed. And the same thing on the hitting side. Uh, the past two seasons, I've been heavily invested in uh, Christian Yellick. I uh, will see come this weekend if I do it a third time. I had more trepidation about his back as opposed to his knee. But I'm thinking with the contract and everything, he's got to be looking pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when when I start to think about just the core concept here, like why do I spend on these players? I think it's because I'm so confident in their ability to return close to that value. I think there's a, a disproportionate likelihood that players at the very top of the pool are break-even or within a couple of dollars of what you pay. And the further you get down the list, the closer you get to the middle part of the player pool where there's extreme variance, you know, that's an area that I'm trying to avoid. So if I can, even if I have to overpay a little bit for one of those big three hitters or for one of DeGrom or Cole, I think even Max Scherzer kind of fits in this conversation for me too. I might pay the extra two or three bucks to get one of those guys, know that I'm going to lose four or five, but I feel like, hey, I'm still locking in, in the case of those pitchers, maybe $35 worth of value in production. And that's really good because I can find value later thinking in part about how the auction dynamics work and trusting my own ability to find undervalued players throughout other parts of the auction. I think that's what drives my willingness to spend up at the top of the pool. Yeah, I just don't want to be buying all middling guys or paying up for that. I do want some uh, stars. I'm not saying I got to go full stars. And look, if you think you can play the end game well, uh, and you're prepared, like having a list of guys for dollar days, and even the reserve rounds are critical. Like, don't go into the auction without a plan there, neither. Uh, you know, having an idea what guys might be available, what guys can help you the most throughout the year. And, uh, you know, there's many ways to do it. I'm not, you know, it's however you feel your strength is, but I'm with you. I want those guys, I think, will return. Either that value or at least close to it and put up those numbers because those, you know, it's just a very valuable thing to have that foundation. So I've also thought that some of the higher stakes auctions, and I've seen this now in, in mixed tout wars where it's a 15 team league. And I think people have realized that the players at the top are obviously the safer investments and everyone's kind of going the same route. When the whole room starts to get aggressive and prices at the top start to tick up even higher, than the max range that we just talked about. What's the counter move to that? I mean, do you bail out or do you also pay up and maybe just do it for fewer high-end players? Like, what's the best way that you found to counteract an over-aggressive auction room? Uh, for me, I think if you're if you're aggressive early, sometimes you get the best buys because once those top couple of guys come off. And people have their tier or something. That's the last guy in the tier. Then they wind up paying a couple extra dollars over that. So if somebody's in my uh, is is one of my guys, and maybe I got I'm not afraid to go a dollar or two over. I know certain people will never do it, or they're just rigid. I, I'm gonna play it out. If I need to step back a little after that, I'll step back. But I, I think the the most important thing is having your plan. Have 
having your players set out, like writing out prices for certain guys or certain types of pitchers you want or certain types of numbers and where those guys are clustered, that's what I think the most valuable thing about the article is. It's just showing you the tiers. Are those prices going to be exact come your auction? No. But it's giving you a point of view. Last year, there were only six players that were average priced over 40. This year, there's 10. There's one other thought here, Matt, that you could try to basically ace the early rounders who are likely to move up the board, trying to figure out of the 20 to $30 players, you know, who's going to be a $40 player when we look ahead to 2021. Of course, there's risk in that. I mean, you're getting a slight discount because a lot of those players are just reaching new levels for the very first time, so they could underperform and you could end up really light. But if you have to pivot away from full stars and scrubs, are you willing to go after several $20 and $30 players to really avoid being a totally balanced team? It's not full-on stars and scrubs, but it's not that a bunch of $10, $15 players up and down the roster either, which I think in mixed leagues can be really damaging. Yeah, no, that way I I would attack it. I, I do not want to have a bunch of $15 players on my team. I do want some guys that are proven that still have upside. So for most for most of the time, I'm going to have an open mind. Uh, more for my auction championship teams, say for the ultimate auction, I will have my targets that I do want to get, you know, as I mentioned earlier. Three guys here, three guys there for pitching and hitting, and try and get at least one of those guys on each. And generally, I think as that group breaks down each of those groups break down that's when you decide to be a little more aggressive with your budget maybe you end up setting the max bid on players because you want to make sure that you get the foundation you want in some combination but i talked about this with eno uh, on rates and barrels uh, coming out of the labor auctions you really do want to have kind of like a decision tree uh, it sounds like you use clusters so each each branch for you is a few different guys that that make sense and you want to get you know, one ace and one top bat and maybe one source of speed earlier, whatever those things are. And then from there, you have plans. Okay, if this doesn't work, then maybe I can go to this group of players instead. Is that part of how you build out a foundation? You kind of have a few rough drafts or a few paths that you could follow depending on what actually happens early? Uh, pretty much so. I mean, I'll know what the players are all going for when I walk in that room and I think like yourself, I'm going to be aggressive early. And sometimes when you're aggressive early, you do get a good buy on, you know, higher end players because at some point they're going to be gone. And when you reach the bottom of that tier, people are going to really, you know, be pushing guys up because they don't want to miss out. So, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's very important. But I think, as you said, having a plan throughout. Knowing your end game and stuff and knowing the guys you plan on target and having uh, the, right, the right amount of money allocated for that. I put up a poll question prior to the weekend. I was thinking about it more in terms of a snake draft at the time, but it certainly can apply to an auction as well. It was a pretty simple question. It was, which of these players is most likely to have a first-round ADP in 2021? And in the case of an auction value, I guess we'd be talking about who's most likely to be a $40 player this time next year. I put Austin Meadows, Keston Hira, and Adalberto Mondesi in the poll. I was a little bit surprised. Keston Hira got 45.3% of the vote. Meadows came in second at 335 and Adalberto Mondesi, maybe because he's coming off the shoulder injury, 
came in a bit lighter at 21.1%. I'll put the same question to you, at least of those three guys, who do you think is most likely to be a first rounder slash $40 player going into next season? Well, I mean, I'm going to agree that Mondesi has the easiest path just based on speed. If he gets the plate appearances over the last two seasons in 734 plate appearances, he has stolen 75 of 89 attempts. So that's pretty damn good. Uh, The plate skills are atrocious, as we know. I think with Hira, I'm interested to see what happens this year. He was known in the minors for having, you know, this incredible bat, but not not the power that we saw last year. And he sold out for some power. Does he kind of go back a little? And, you know, maybe that 30% strikeout comes down. We don't get as many homers, and it's kind of a hybrid of that player. But for me, the guy is going to be Austin Meadows. Uh I have a lot of Austin Meadows this offseason. His main uh, thing that needs to be improved is versus left-handed hitting. He has a 30% strikeout. If he can correct that somewhat, make the improvements there, I think the gains overall can be, you know, really beneficial. And this is a guy that has the ability to trend upward even from where he is now. Yeah, I think the the point you made on on Hero with the strikeout rate is pretty interesting. A 30.7% K rate when he debuted with the Brewers last year. That was easily the highest he's posted at any level. Uh, He was up at a career-high 26.3% prior to getting the call to Milwaukee during his time at AAA. I mean, typically between A-ball, high-A, double-A, those levels, he was 20% or lower. That was pretty standard for Hero. Uh, Getting to more power last year, I think, was more than just the function of the rabbit ball, both at AAA and in the big leagues. We did see the fly ball rate jump with the move to Milwaukee. Uh, 38% ground ball rate was the lowest he's posted at any level. So I think there's reason to believe that with his approach, there will be improvement in the K rate. There will be more balls in play. That gives him a chance of maybe offsetting some of the Babbitt progression that seems like a certainty. I mean, a 402 Babbitt year over year, we just don't see guys sustain that. And we're talking about a player that can hit the ball to all fields and do it with pop. If you look at where Keston Hira hits home runs, as a right-handed hitter, you're really surprised to see how many he hits out to center and to the opposite field. Uh, so it's not just like an all-pull power sort of thing. Like He's legit strong and can probably hit 30 home runs in a normal year if you say he's going to strike out 30% of the time again, I would guess he probably hits 260 or 265. I don't think he can sustain a 303 batting average uh, with a 30% K rate, but I think the K rate does come down at least to the high 20s range, maybe 25, 27%. And I think we're more likely to see him hit like 275 or 280. Most of the projections have him in that 271 to 275 range. The bats got him a bit low at 258, but he also steals bases. 16 steals in 21 attempts split between AAA and the big leagues last year. It was 9 of 12 during his time in Milwaukee. So I think getting that extra juice in the stolen base category in particular gives Hira that interesting little nudge too where, yeah, Meadows can run some and he wasn't as efficient as Hira was last year in that regard. And Mondesi, I think we've compared him to Trey Turner on this show at some point in the not-so-distant past. I mean, that's sort of the categorical uh, potential that he has. You can see how that all falls into place. I think what's interesting also is what you said about Meadows, though. Needs to improve against lefties. He's on a team that likes to platoon. I don't think he's going to be platooned. I think he may occasionally sit against a tough lefty because they have the depth to do it. Uh, But I do think he's going to have a chance 
to remain a legit everyday player. I think the Rays see the potential in Meadows, so I'm not worried about him losing playing time, even though those splits have been pretty rough so far. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree with most everything you said, like with uh, with Hira and with Meadows. I don't think he's going to be a platoon guy. I really don't. I know James Anderson, uh, I saw a tweet from him over the weekend, how he was able to get him last year in a bunch of leagues. Everybody thought he was going to be a platoon player. And look, if he was facing a healthy Chris Sale, I can see sitting him. We've seen that in the past, you know, with, with good hitters. You know, if you got an elite guy, you can give him a day off here or there, and baseball's more apt to that. Uh, the real question for me is with Mondesi, is that shoulder, when will he get on the field? I mean, if you told me he was going to come May 1st and play five full months of baseball, he could still steal 60 bases. Yeah, he has that sort of categorical uh, potential. I mean, that's just... That's the simple fact when it comes to Edelberto Mondesi and, and just painting some some color to the Austin Meadows lefty numbers. I mean, he had a 120 WRC plus against them. He was 20% better mm-hmm. than a league average hitter, where I mean things got rough came from the fact that he struck out almost 30% of the time. He was at 29.9% with the K rate, 5.1% with the walk rate. So you look at those numbers, you look at those results and say, hmm, is that... Is that sustainable or was that just a good year in a pretty wide range of outcomes for him in a small split? I think that's one of the few caution lights, if you will, with Austin Meadows as an early round pick. But generally, I think he belongs you know, where he's going. Uh, for what it's worth, if I had to pick one of these guys, it, it would be Hira because I think he's the best pure hitter of the entire bunch. But the difference between Hira and Meadows is pretty much negligible. And with Mondesi... Initially, when he broke in, I was fixated on his lack of plate discipline as a a flaw that just wasn't ever going to get better. And while that may be true, it may not matter because he's a good enough defender to play every day. The Royals know, like even with Mike Matheny, he's going to get plenty of green lights. Like for a guy that has a low OBP, like in the 290, 300 range in each of the last two seasons, if if he stays there, he's still going to get a green light almost every time there's an open base in front of him, which... There are very few players in the league that even have that, and he, of course, has the tools to actually make good on that. And he's not, of course, just a speed guy. He has some pretty interesting power projections as well. I mean, the most pessimistic projection in terms of what he has on his Fangraphs page right now comes from Zips with 14 home runs, and that's with the lightest amount of playing time projected at 120 games. So we're probably looking at 15-plus homers to go along with those 40 steals as long as the batting average doesn't completely bottom out. We're talking like... Rugnet Odor, bottom 5% sort of outcomes, he's probably going to be fine as a 25-ish dollar player or as a third-round pick. Yeah, I mean, I'm I the home run power, uh, I'm maybe a little more skeptical on, but I think he's a guy that's going to hit double digits, put it that way. So I think you're fine there. And if he can bat 245 and... Chip in 12, 13 homers and steal 50 bases or more. That's a win. Absolutely. The other question I have for you, thinking about the very top of the board, I mean, you have these clusters you want. Are you just not going to let it happen where you have to go with that balanced approach in a mixed league auction? Or do you have a contingency plan in place if numbers are coming in 5 and $7 above your value? I mean, it's, I've been in a couple auctions. One is the Rotowire Stake League auction. It's a little bit bigger. I think it's a 17-teamer. There's just chaos at the table. Like there's there's no rhyme or reason to like how much over 
projected value players are going to go for. And I've found myself kind of stuck in this weird place where I don't really know what I want to do because I don't decide quickly enough to overpay for one of the stars. And then I talk myself out of overpaying a little bit for a lot of these second tier guys. So are you just gung ho that you are absolutely going to get into that top tier or do you have a bunch of targets ready just in case you end up in that really hyperinflated room? I mean, I wouldn't use the term gung ho, but I think being aggressive helps early because you, you, you can get the guy for that extra dollar or two. But if I had to, then my next uh, plan would be instead of, say, getting that $42 guy, I'm going to get a couple of guys and be willing to pay, say, maybe like that mid-30s or you know low-30s on, on those two guys there, maybe increase a guy up. And scale and change my plan as I'm going through with say the with the middle of my team. Maybe a couple of guys will get increased up and I'll be willing to scale back a little later on because I know there's gonna be some deals with all that money that went off the table. Yeah, I'm looking at that twenty five to twenty nine dollar tier in your article and thinking, okay, if you don't have anybody as you start really seeing more of these players get nominated, this is where you have to start really throwing your money around because it starts to taper off quite a bit once you get down under $20. It's an area of the mixed league auction board where I really don't want to live. Uh, I know you're a big Chris Paddock guy, so we don't have to go into (laughs) great detail there. But if you're looking at Paddock versus, say, you Darvish, and Darvish was amazing in the second half of last year, do you have a strong lean between those two guys in particular? Because it's interesting to me that Paddock's actually – been just a little bit cheaper than Darvish. 26 has been the average price for Darvish, 25 for Paddock. Highs are both 29, so they're they're in the same cluster. Do they belong in the same cluster based on things you've seen from Darvish in the past and more specifically based on the improved control he was showing us in the second half? Yeah, I mean, what, what Darvish did, and it, it was even before the second half. I mean, the home run still happened, but, you know, that ball was a little nuts. But from, like, the middle of May or that third week of May on, and I, I mean, for me, they're kind of similar. Maybe I, I lean more Darvish here. Of course, with Paddock, the key is, as much as I love him, this season, you know, when everybody's going to have a, uh, you know, have a book on him and all that, the curveball is crucial. Can he? And he's come out and said, I've seen in an article, uh, I believe, where you know it was a top-notch curveball. I've been trying to watch some spring training games with him pitching. And I haven't seen a ton of curves going, uh, being thrown. I've seen some. But that's the key here for that second season. He doesn't have to throw it, you know, 20% of the time. But if he can mix that in, say, 12%, and it's a good enough pitch, then I think he can really succeed and really good things. So, lean Darvish, but Paddock's definitely in that range for me as well. I feel so much more comfortable with uh, the pitchers in that tier from your article. I mean, it kind of tops out with Bieber, Strasburg, Luis Castillo, Chris Sales kind of in purgatory right now. But yeah, Lucas Giolito belongs there. Corbin, like most of those guys are are guys that I'm comfortable with as my ace if I do get priced out up top. But when it comes to the bats, you mentioned Javi Baez. I think he's one of the few hitters in that group I like. I'm fine with Meadows. Judges hurt right now. My take on Jonathan VR remains the same. I know he's categorically good. He's a better fantasy player than a real-life player. But the gap between you know, what he really is and 
what we want him to be from a fantasy perspective is still pretty wide. What I mean by that is that his real skills include two seasons in the last three where he's been a below average offensive player. (laughs) I mean, below 100 WRC pluses in 2017 and 2018. He was up at 107 last year. A 24 homer, 40 steal season should have people a lot more excited or should have me a lot more excited than I am. He drew a few walks. He got the K rate down to the lowest mark it's been at since 2015. And the projection systems are even pretty solid with him. I think the batting average is probably the the category that projections are going to pull him down the most in. I see a 249 from the bat. I see a 260 from zips at the high end. Uh, but generally, 16 to 18 homers and an easy mid-30s or higher stolen base total seems like the expectation what are you doing with VR in a situation like an auction where you have so much more control over where you get your steals compared to a snake draft where things could break in a certain way and you know you could be caught on the end of a, a draft order and, and probably miss out on some of the bags you want in a run? Is it easier to avoid a player like VR in an auction or is it even easier to end up with him because the price might be more reflective of his actual value? Well, if to me what v- VR is is kind of like the running back in fantasy football that gets all the volume and stuff. As long as he has that volume, he is good. He's going to put up the numbers for you. You know, it's more volume over talent. And that's what it comes down to in Miami. If he gets those plate appearances and he's out there playing every day, he's going to steal bases. I mean, just... Just playing the Mets, he's going to you know, <laughs> rack up a bunch of stolen bases there. He's going to get like 15 steals against the Mets alone this year. Like, I, I wonder if you can bet. You could probably bet that somewhere. <laughs> you probably could. Uh, is he somebody I'm specifically targeting? No. Uh, but if he's available and he hasn't been nominated and I'm looking at my team and maybe I'm deficient in speed, but I have the average and the power and pretty much everything else, I'm, I would go in on him, but I'd have a certain price. I don't know if I'm going to pay the $26, but you know, if he comes at a bit of a discount, then maybe I'm interested. He's the kind of player, though, so there's a general auction tactic that I like to follow uh, when it comes to nominating players early. If you like him, you should throw him early. And mm-hmm. I know you're going to be a little careful about only throwing players you like or never throwing players you like because then you become easy to read, but... Because he's a potential 2040 guy, the 40 being the key there, if he's going to be a third or at least a quarter of the stolen bases you need, depending on the size of your league, you want to know as early as possible if you have him. Because if you do, maybe you load up on some of the safe you know, early round $30 bats who generally don't steal bases to stabilize your offensive floor since you have so many bags coming from him. You can get... Nolan Arenado as one of your your thirty five plus dollar guys as one of your forty dollar bats even maybe you go after Freddie Freeman right you go after those types of players as part of your foundation because you know you already have VR in tow whereas if you throw them early and don't get them at least you know that you have to find those bags somewhere else so you can choose oh, am I going to go after Victor Robles later am I going to go after Starling Marte early on or am I going to try and get a bunch of guys that get me ten or fifteen or twenty bags sprinkled throughout the auction later like i just think there are certain types of players that you want to nominate as early as possible just to know if you have them as building blocks or if you don't have them as building blocks i think that's an excellent point and i think to backtrack just a little 
I think you need to throw out guys you like and guys you don't like. There are certain people that will only throw out guys they don't like. And you don't want to, and you just don't want the opposite. But I, I think you have to be willing, you know, to mix it up. And I, I think that goes true as far as, you know, you want to know if you're going to get certain guys early. I think there's certain guys that either that guy or another couple of guys that I got to get one of these guys. If I don't, how am I going to, you know, what is my next course of action going to be? And at some point early on, even if you don't nominate them, you know, you might be in on the bidding, but there was somebody that was just hell bent on having that guy. You just weren't going to get him. So, you know, you're going to have to, then you look to player B and maybe he wasn't, he was the second choice, and then you could throw him out and say, let me see if I can get him and all that. So I, I think that is, those are two crucial points uh, in the auction. But I, I think with the auction, it's just having that preparation and, you know, seeing how it opens up. And if you're not an aggressive type, you can still do very well. You, For me, you just don't want to be – Without you know any twenty five dollar and up guys, I think that is just a tough is it just a tough way to win. Maybe I'm wrong, but from my experience and the times I've done well and have, in the last couple of years, it's worked out really well. I don't want to get caught with those guys. Yeah, I think you just you fall short in the counting stacks mm-hmm. usually. Like you you might do fine from a value perspective. You might be buying players for two, three, four, five dollars less than what they end up being worth, but it just turns out you didn't buy enough production uh, mm-hmm. because of the way the auction dynamics work and because of that extra value created in the end game. And I think this is the other key, kind of key part. Like You can look through all these different tiers at the top and you can come up with all these different flow charts for types of players you want. And maybe you can this year, maybe this year is unique where you could live in the 20 to $24 tier and get four or five players from there. Mm-hmm. And that might be good enough because you could have maybe a Bo Bichette as your your growth potential guy. You could have a couple old and boring types, which is amazing to say about like Manny Machado and, and Chris Bryant at this point. And then you could add pitching. You could go something like Trevor Bauer for Ks and Zach Grinke for ratios. And you've kind of spread out 110 or $115 over those five players. And that foundation's just good enough to get you there. But I just think your margin for error gets smaller and smaller the longer you wait to put that foundation in place. There's just more ways it can go wrong uh, as you kind of go yeah. down that path. And just to, as you like were saying, like the pitching would say with a Granky and a Bauer and how you're intertwining that, I just, even in a draft or in an auction, like if you're going to get Garrett Cole, I'm not going to sit there and either draft Garrett Cole in the first round or spend upwards of $45 on him and not have my plan being having somebody else in there. It's not going to be Garrett Cole and a bunch of whoever's or, you know, I want somebody to support that. Even in a draft, I, I want that to be supported. If you're making that investment, why are you not, you know, solidifying it? And then you can, you know, spread out the rest of your pitching. But I, I see that a lot where it's either in the draft or the auction, you get that big pitcher and then it's a bunch of like, you know, a lot of low-level guys, put it that way. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. I, you, you do want to make sure that you don't waste all the great ratios you just banked with that foundational pitcher when it comes to a Cole or a DeGrom or a Scherzer or whoever, whoever your ace of choice 
really is this year. I feel bad not having Verlander in that conversation, but it sounds like opening day is going to be pretty much off the table at this point. He's got a a lat strain, they're calling it now. First, it was a triceps injury. Now I'm seeing lat strain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the last I've seen. It's, you know... It's going to be interesting. It's really going to be interesting come uh, uh, Saturday and good times ahead, put it that way. So you're going to sprinkle in some mid-tier players. You're just not relying on them to be the first few players on your roster or the most expensive players on your roster. Some interesting names falling into the sub-$20 range in terms of their average value so far in NFBC auctions. But just like there is in the main event, I think we can get some helium as we get closer to opening day. I'm a little surprised to see Vlad Jr. sitting there with a $19 AAV. Like I, I think that's lighter than what it costs to draft him in a snake draft, relatively speaking. And I would have a very difficult time not saying 20 if the bid was at 19 and I was in the room. <laughs> I'd, I'd have a hard time not saying 23. His max is 22. So if he's sitting around his max, I, I think that's a fair price because you're getting a good floor and there is a lot to like. Obviously, the 80 hit tool and 80 power, it's all well documented. But all the hype that we had for Vlad Jr. last year, I think that was actually well-founded. Even though it didn't pay off in year one, I don't think the assessments of what he can be as a player were necessarily wrong. I think we were just reminded that it doesn't always happen immediately. Where do you fall on Vlad Jr.? Is he a legitimate foundational building block that you want to seek out in situations like this? Or are you still going to kind of wait it out and, and maybe see what happens this year before investing in him more heavily? Uh, I want to have Vlad, uh, Vlad Jr. shares. I don't know if I want all of them, but I definitely want to have a portion of a portfolio with Vlad shares. As you said, you know, the hype and all that, it wasn't like he didn't do anything. It was disappointing because he was pretty much promised to be, you know, a 340 hitter and all that. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little, but, you know, pretty much like a Ted Williams type at third base. But I I think all the tools are there for him. And I think he's going to go over that $20 price tag here. And, you you know, there's there's other players in this range that are just under the 20 like a Louis Robert, which I don't really know what to do with this year. I know some people just have to have him. Others are just avoiding him. I'm honestly just confused what to do at this moment. But he's going to, I think, break that $20 uh, plateau just based on the speed potential alone. Yeah, I think his max bid so far from your article is 22 I think he's getting up into like the 24 25 range mm-hmm. as we get closer to opening day. Nelson Cruz still undervalued. He's part of that $15 to $19 tier near the top, of course, with that $19 AAV. Pretty wide range, too. A min of 14 There's some rumor Nelson Cruz went for $14. I would love that. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll shadow draft that at $15 every single time. Uh, Gary Sanchez, kind of a tricky player. This was a question that, that Al Melkier asked me on the Fantasy Baseball in, in 15 podcast. And I just think it's kind of interesting because an auction certainly can uh, adjust a little more specifically to the risk and, and flaws that a player might have. Does Gary Sanchez seem like the injuries are appropriately priced in at this point? I mean, because he's missed time in each of the last two seasons, and I mean, he really bottomed out, of course, skills-wise in 2018. But do you think he makes sense as an $18 player? And again, we're operating in a universe in which the leagues all require you to start two catchers, so that's a, a pretty big factor as well. But is this an appropriate price for what Sanchez is likely to do and what he's capable of doing? 
You know, the, the power's there. I don't think he's a 180-something hitter. Uh, is he more of a 230 hitter? Yeah, probably in in that type of range. And he's going to hit the 30-plus homers if he can stay on the field. But I'm just never going to pay $18 or $16 for a catcher. It's usually going to be, you know, maybe I get like one of those $5 catchers and then I get another $2 guy that I really like late. That's just the way I do it. So for me, I get it. Other people see that advantage with the catching. I just think it's too risky, and I'd rather get my, you know, other positions and spend that money on that. And it's just a preference. I'm not saying that my way is right, which I see how you you can get the profit that way. I just operate on, on I operate from it totally different. So to me, it's just there's no way. If there was like a Mike Piazza type who, you know, came in the league and was going to hit 300 and knock 34 homers as a catcher, then, I, then I'll get involved. But until then, you know, every year it seems like there's always somebody new, and I've, I've been pretty lucky to get at least one of them as my number two or something like that. So there's one other kind of structural question in the upper tiers that I, I want to bring up. It seems like because of what happened last year in the closer pool, prices are down a bit. At least they were in snake drafts mm-hmm. to begin draft season. I think Josh Hader's kind of crept up in recent weeks in terms of his ADP, but he was the only closer above the $20 mark, I believe, at the time of this writing. Mm-hmm. So 23 was the price on Hader, and there was a little tear break, and then you got down to some of the other closers. Um, you know, Liam Hendricks, Kirby Yates, I think, is in that next group. Uh, Hendricks is only at 15 and Roberto Ozuna at 16 also in there as well. Yates up at 17. Rollis Chapman at 17. Does your approach with getting saves change in an auction versus a snake draft where you have all that flexibility to manage your money differently? I think they're, they're both kind of similar in where I'll want to get the one guy, you know, who I think is, who has a secure hold on that job, so maybe in a draft, it's the seventh round, say, that I'm willing to take a, a certain guy. There's only maybe one or two of those guys. Otherwise, I'm going to wait. And in the auction, there may be that guy I'm willing to spend, say, $15 on as my number one and maybe get a $5 guy or, you know, somebody that we're not sure if he has a job. Say, like a Will Smith type kind of guy, like, should get saves. But I got one guy that I think is going to save 35 and you know maybe I take a late spec on somebody else, so I'm you know I'm not probably going to buy the 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 two guys for twelve, you know I'll probably cap it out cheaper than that. But I do want to get at least one guy there. Otherwise, you know it does get dicey. I don't have to win saves. I never have that approach. Funny thing was last night we did the beat Justin Mason league and me and Vlad partnered. We got Josh Hader in the seventh round. In a 12-team league. I know it's a 12-team league, but in the seventh round, it was like, how do we not take him? Oh, that's unbelievable. Seven- <laughs> and he wasn't even the first closer off the board. Azuna went and won. I understand, I think, how you could rationalize it. I think the person that does something mm-hmm. like that would say, well, Corey Knable comes back eventually. We've seen the Brewers in the past take Hater and use him in the seventh or the eighth as needed, so... You know, maybe I don't feel confident that he's the, he's the closer start to finish, even though he's obviously a very big part of their bullpen. I think where we might be misstepping, if, if people take that approach, 
Josh Hader brings categorical value in the other pitching categories, like the extra innings he gives you as a reliever who throws more than the typical closer makes the ratios count more. The ratios are very good. They're elite ratios. And then, of course, the strikeout rates just off the charts good as well. So he can help bring up the strikeouts of a Kyle Hendricks or a Grinky even. So if you, you had a foundation where maybe you waited to get your first starting pitcher, I think Hader makes a lot of sense as your first reliever mm-hmm. because he can mask some of the flaws of that starter that you drafted and still help to preserve the ratios that you were trying to lock in anyway. I think if you, if I'd say Zach Greinke was your number one starter, the first one you got off the board, I think a, I, I think a Hader really makes sense there. I think that's a nice combo if you were going to pay that money. Like, Maybe if you want to try and get him early, you call him out for like 17, 18, get him under the – see if nobody wants to pay that closure price tag early. You know, that's like with Nelson Cruz. That's how I got to assume he went for $14. Somebody said $14 in the first couple of throws and nobody wanted to spend it yet on a on a util. That's the only like thing that makes sense or maybe – it still doesn't make sense. But <laughs> the only rationale, I should say. I have come to the point where I think all of the UT-only players that we care about are all underpriced this draft season. Yes. As high as, I mean, well, Jordan Alvarez now, might be the exception. He might be appropriately priced, but I think only Mike Trout had a higher WRC plus last year than Jordan Alvarez. The only thing I'm worried about with him right now is the knee has been a little problem for him here in spring training. But uh, especially Nelson Cruz, where he's going... Oakland's Chris Davis, Miguel Andujar, and Nick Solak as a result of the misfortune of Willie Calhoun getting mm-hmm. hit in the face with a pitch. If you were worried about where Nick Solak was going to play or you were worried about him not qualifying at a position early in the season, I think those concerns are quickly going to be erased because he's he's going to play somewhere, probably some left field, maybe even a little bit of second base as well. Yeah, he should definitely have the position come the end of April. You know, Even if they move him around and stuff, he should get the starts needed by after that first month. So he was a guy that you might have got for for like a buck at some point or maybe two, but he's going to get pushed up a bit. So the next part of this equation is really just talking about some of the players that we like late because if you're going to go heavy up top, you're going to kind of sit out a lot of the players in the middle part of the pricing. You're going to be getting back in near the end, and the values really start to stand out to me. Like if you take a look at the NFBC's uh, average auction values. You can do that from the NFBC uh, ADP page. All you have to do is just hit the drop down where it says all drafts. Just switch that over to average auction values. Like I'm looking at it from March 1st through the time of this recording. So March 9th is what I have typed in. But you can you can stretch it back a little further if you want to get more in there. I think it's it's like six dollars and under is where I see players that I really like. And there's some players above that that are certainly worth considering. I just think you're more likely to see them get pushed up a little bit by owners who have the hammer or owners who are chasing something. But I'm looking for playing time in the end game. I'm looking for guys who are everyday players who should cost more and they just won't because people aren't going to have the money left. So a few names that immediately jumped off the page to me, Dansby Swanson, Avisail Garcia, Paul DeYoung, Adam Eaton. I mean, Garcia's of those four, probably the guy who has the most questions about how much he's going to play. But three out of those four guys could be everyday fixtures Mm -hmm. in average and probably well above average big league lineups. And I I just can't believe that they're that affordable. 
Yeah, I mean, and a guy like Abisil Garcia is his path to pretty much an everyday role. I mean, I can envision it. I can see how it happened. So it's not like outrageous. And he's been pretty sneaky good the last couple of years. A guy that, you know, kind of, we kind of left for dead or kind of walked away from. And I just love him at Miller Park. So, yeah, him. Uh, Swanson is a guy that, you know, he's going to hit some homers. He's going to steal bases. And he's going to play for defense. So, I, I'm I'm agreeing on what you're saying here about you know what you're looking for, and that's what I'm trying to say is getting that big foundation, and then having say a game plan, writing out a few of these guys that you know I want to get two of these guys here or something like that. That really that really can you know pay huge dividends because you know at bats and innings pitched are going to be crucial as the season goes on. And you're going to find yourself starting some players you never really wanted to. Yeah, inevitably that's going to happen. But it's just amazing how much more comfortable I am, say, uh, putting $6 on Gavin Lux than I am committing a ninth or a 10th round pick to him. You know, it's a big difference. Like the the value of a ninth or a 10th round pick seems to be a lot more than six auction dollars out of a 260 budget. I mean, do, do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, another guy, before I'm jumping ahead a little bit, is like Will Smith. I'm told about like, well, it's Melanson's gig and he's their best reliever, but Melanson's going to close. And I don't know, but I look, even if Melanson's closing, he's going to get saves. And he's a guy that can strike out 100 batters. I think he just fell short last year with like 96 or 97. He's got the contract. Uh, I think he's going to get at least a third of their saves. If it's like 15 or so, and he strikes out 90 to 100 plus, he's he's going to pay dividends. And we're looking at a different landscape with saves, obviously, as you know, teams have changed. There's a few guys, like you know Chapman's going to get that ball in the ninth inning, no doubt. But, you know, a lot of other teams, it's not as, it's not as secure. And guys are going to lose roles. It happens every year. Yeah, they absolutely will. But there's so much playing time excess available in the bottom of the pool. I think we talked about Randall Gritchick as a source of cheap mm-hmm. power on our episode yes. two weeks ago. He's a one to three dollar player. He's going to play every single day. Like he's exactly the kind of guy that you want to throw a couple bucks at late for that fourth or fifth outfield spot. And it's gonna be fine because he's probably gonna return eight to ten dollars worth of value. And the thing I like about him Aside from the fact that I think he's an everyday player, the lineup around him with that young talent arriving keeps getting better. So those counting stats might even come out a bit higher than expected. Uh, Shinsu Chu, three bucks, another one of those just cheap guys that delivers every year. We talked about the ballpark, I think, as it pertains to the pitchers and how I think Texas pitchers are now a little safer because the roof's going to be there. So the games are climate controlled. Uh, Hitters lose out a little bit. And Chu, I think, does lose a little bit. So he goes from being a guy that maybe hits 25 home runs to a guy that hits like 20 or 21. That's still really good for an end game play. Like I look mm-hmm. at him as a, a really nice staple player late that you can add in and just cover up a whole bunch of playing time. David Peralta kind of fits that description. Yeah, I mentioned the UT only guys being undervalued. Miguel and Duhar's price in snake drafts and in auctions is going up. <laughs> like There's no way he's going to be a dollar days player once we get to the end of this month. I got Andujar in the reserve round of my DC auction last Sunday. I had like the third pick, and I was like, Andujar right there. I mean, 
It's so, unreal. But like you said, Nick Solak is going to, you know, he's he was a person of interest. And now the fact that he's actually going to have a position is going to change his price. Yeah, it'll, it'll bump him up a couple of bucks. I, I think Andujar is going to take on uh, even more helium than, than Solak because we've yes. seen him do it before. Uh, and the park, the lineup, all those factors, of course, are, are great for him as well. Uh, but it's amazing. Like you see all these other guys, like Mike Fultonevich, under five bucks. That's really interesting to me. Mitch Keller, who's uh, kind of a sneaky pick two hundred ish guy in snakes, three four bucks for him will get it done probably in most auction rooms. So you can kind of find the players with ceilings that you're chasing. You can find the more established guys. Uh, I, I just like being able to really mix and match based on what I need in the end game. I feel like there's plenty of viable options pretty much everywhere. You mentioned Will Smith, four bucks. For four dollars in a mixed league, he could get three saves all year. If he does what he's supposed to do with ratios and Ks, he could be your ninth pitcher most weeks and still return more than four dollars worth of value for you. So that's a no-brainer at the price. And I think there's a very good chance that he either shares the closer role with Melanson or just takes it outright. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think you know there's been some people that have argued that point with me, but I'm always going to be one of the guys that goes bet. You know. Bet on talent winning out. But, like, real quick, like, what we're talking about here, I I know our friend of the pod, Vlad Sedler, had a great interview with Casey Cha recently. And he said how he he works it from the back up. And back here in these, you know, these under 10, under 5, or certain dollar a day guys, if if you're spending the time, I think people just spend too much time on the top, and kind of, you know what, I'll just figure it out at the end and not have that pretty much that, that, that blueprint laid out prior. Because I think that preparation is pivotal. Yeah, and I think the way I would apply that as, as you're looking at the cheap players on this auction report or you're just looking at down list players that you'd like, figure out what categories you can sort of find in excess. And you'll find pretty quickly steals are among the things you don't really find a lot of in quality. Uh, when you do find them late, often it's in the form of an Adam Eaton or a Dansby Swanson, guys that can do some other things. And, and it's nice to have those players, but cheap steals are almost impossible to find. So if you are working backwards, it makes you realize, okay, I do have to find a couple of ways to get to maybe a three quarters of my steals targets before I'm down to like $50 an auction money because I'm not going to find enough steals if I don't buy them before mm-hmm. then, right? I think there's definitely some some ways to really lean into that advice. And again, it's going to come down to prep, but you're going to find the quality of the players available in the end game of a mixed league auction in particular is plenty high. There's, there's a mix of everything you could want in terms of young and old and everyday guys, platoon guys, potential closers, just about everything except for, for speedsters. And sometimes... We get lucky on the waiver wire with speedsters too. So just because you can't find him in the end game in the auction doesn't mean you won't find him uh, at some point during the season. Uh, is there anything else late in the end game, either end game management or specific targets that you're interested in? Uh, I, I just think it, it, it as you're getting towards that end game, it's imperative that you call out the right players and you're kind of looking at the draft board. Like, does the guy with the most money need that position that you need right now? Mm-hmm. And you're trying to, like, play chicken and not call that guy out until that guy fills up his spot 
and then you could, you know, call them up because you pretty much have a dollar. Everybody else has two, but they got other needs. So at that point is when the when the auction board and you're, you know, filling out the positions and all that is, you know, is really something you need to be cognizant about. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has a different tool they like to use. I think uh, Vlad Sedler, when he was on this show a couple of weeks ago, mentioned he uses Rotolab. Like, I've used the Rotowire software for forever because I, I worked there for so long. I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, the main thing is that whether you're using those softwares, your own spreadsheet, or you're looking at the grid, you do want to be aware in the last third of the auction of what the other people at the table have left to spend what their max bid ends up being as a result of that, mm -hmm. and then what positions and or categories potentially are they chasing. I think software makes it easier. You can do it other ways, but there is a point where you really want to start to focus on that because that does shape the players you're nominating, and it shapes the opening bid too. You know, If you're down to last couple dollars, like throwing a player at one uh, might actually price you out. If someone else says two and that was your max bid, you screwed up. <laughs> like if you really yes. wanted that player, you got to nominate him at two. Uh, little things like that actually do kind of add up once you get to those final stages of the auction. So I would recommend finding something that works really well for you if you haven't already. If you're thinking about taking the plunge in auctions, they're a ton of fun. Uh, they're a totally they really unique are. challenge, and yeah, I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely getting into one of the auctions coming up online. I don't know which one exactly yet. If I if I narrow it down soon, I will tweet about it and let people know, and they can come take my money, um, but or try to take my money. I'm, I don't know. I think I'm pretty good at auctions. Oh, but. yeah. I think you've done pretty well in the, in, in the auction format. Yeah. I think, I think that's a strength <laughs> that of mine. That mixed, right? <laughs> yeah. Mixed has gone well, and, and NL only. I should I should play some kind of like high-stakes NL only auction. I think that might be... Like, Those are fun. I, I did the AL twice. I won it the first year. I think I finished dead last second year. I mean, it was over by like mid-May. I was at the second year, but they, they really are. It's just, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I've, I've done that leg work already, so I might as well put it to good use, but uh, that's going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can find Matt on Twitter at CTM Baseball. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. As I mentioned at the top, if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic yet, you can get 40% off at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. we got updated rankings. We have Matt's article that I referenced earlier up available on the site. Pretty much everything you could want to get ready for the 2020 season. For Matt Medica, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back with you Wednesday on Under the Radar. 